want to spend time now just to uh, bring Kurt back up. But before I do that, you know, just kind of thinking about Kurt and, and all that he is doing for the sake of the church, for the sake of the Lord. You know, we can say he's a psychiatrist. We can say that he's an author. We can say all these things about him. But having had a chance to spend time with him this afternoon, you know, he's a brother, he's a son of God, he's a man who is after God's own heart for the sake of the well-being of the church. That the church may know one another and be known and live in community in such a way that there is true healing in the name of Jesus. So with that, join me in bringing Kurt back up. came back. It's good. Good day this afternoon. Good. Like the weather is just like un, just like really remarkable. Um, uh, I I had the opportunity to have a couple of really really lovely conversations and uh, got to go for a run and uh, uh, just really lovely to be in this space with people that you know that you're with uh, and you, it's like you just know you're not by yourself. You know you're being loved. Um, just with the people being around. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting um, what the brain tends to do with this. Like, even now, sitting in this room, uh, there are parts of your mind that are uh, having to do the necessary work of uh, testing whether or not the room is safe. I don't know if you know that or not. I know that you're testing whether or not the room is cool enough, which it is not. <laughs> but you're testing whether or not the room is safe. The brain's always doing this, right? Because if we don't have safety, like we have to have safety in order for any organ, in order for any organism to function, right? The organism has to have integrity, integrity within which, like even a cell, a cell has to have integrity within which it can then operate and do its job. It needs to know that it can at least operate in such a way that there's not so much danger that it can't then do its job. So even for a community to do what it's called to do in the course of a weekend. We're constantly monitoring, monitoring the, the environment to see if we're okay. So, like, just so you know, like, the person who's sitting next to you is checking to see if you're safe. And so far, because nobody's leaving, you apparently are. It's a good thing. But here's the thing. The more vulnerable we are willing to be with each other, 
the more we communicate to each other that we are safe to be increasingly vulnerable. And what we heard this morning is that joy is the delight with which God has created us, but he does so with the intention that we are to be vulnerable without shame being in the conversation. Does that make sense? And the problem that we have after Genesis 1 and 2 is that we have Genesis 3. Now, those of us who are familiar with that, um, we're not, we're not going to do Genesis 3. We're going to leapfrog over that because we're kind of familiar with this story about the woman and the man and the snake in the garden. And there's a conversation. But there is one thing that I will suggest to you. And, I, you know, there's this book that's floating out there that I wrote a year ago. And you should buy a copy if you haven't. Uh, help my sales. Come on. And one, thing, one of the things that I invite the reader to consider in this is that uh, the process of shame, the neurobiological, the physiologic, the affective state of shame is something that I invite you to consider begins before any fruit gets eaten. In Genesis 3, it actually begins in the conversation between the snake and the woman. And you can go read about that. But what I'm going to suggest is that the eating of fruit, the picking of something, the taking of something, not the receiving, the taking of something, is a way for us to, a way for her to defend against and to help regulate and to protect against what's already starting to happen that gets invoked in this conversation between her and the snake. If you can imagine, if you think that you've had a really great relationship with both of your parents, your father especially, and then one day somebody walks in, maybe it's even your dad, and says, honey, I gotta tell you something, you're 19 years old, this has happened in my office. Somebody walks in and says, I just gotta let you know, I'm moving out of the house because I have another family in Seattle. Can you imagine? Like, you know nothing about this. This relationship that you thought was really okay between you and your dad, what happens to that? I want to suggest that in some respects, what the snake says to the woman is, oh, you think God really thinks that you're special? God doesn't really want you becoming like him. That's why he doesn't want you eating the fruit of the tree. You with me? Imagine what starts to happen within somebody when then we don't have another relationship with which we are going to go check this out, right? Because nobody goes to God and says, excuse me, could we like have some information here about what the snake is saying? There's no conversation, there's no evidence that that conversation happens. And the man, hello, right? Like present but asleep, like not saying nothing, right? And then their eyes were opened. Notice that the verb tense is not active. The verb tense does not say, and they open their eyes. Their eyes were opened. This is what shame does to it. It does things to us. Right? It's kind of like, you know, when their eyes were open, they saw that they were naked, right? You can imagine. They look and, you know, she says, could you please put that away? You know what I mean, the bat, right? And he's like, what? Like, got a lot of fruit fest? You put on some weight, right? Like, there is this sense in which each other opens each other's eyes. Like my eyes are being opened by that which happens to me. Because this is what shame does. And here's the thing. Like we start to do it so automatically. It becomes so endemic in who we are as individuals. It, begun, it begins to become systemic. And we don't even know that it's happening. All that's in each of us. 
and it's in all of us as a unit. One of the things we like to say about the mind is that it's a process that emerges. It's an emergent process. You might have said this earlier. I don't know where I said it. Did we say this this morning? That it's an emergent process, that the whole becomes larger than some of its parts. Right? If you take all the things that we sense, image, feel, think, if you take all those neurons, all those neural networks that represent the different features of the mind, and you bring them individually to the table, they can't really do very much by themselves. You put them together, you get Tchaikovsky. Right? But you wouldn't predict Tchaikovsky. You couldn't do that. We're not able to predict the kinds of things that the brain can do when it is moving collectively as a whole. But here's the bad news about shame. It operates in the same way. My shame by itself is bad enough. You put yours and mine together, it's worse than we think. One plus one equals like six. So if we are not paying attention to this, the parts of our brains, the parts of our minds, the parts of our communities that are run by shame start to operate quite automatically without our paying much attention to it. And then we get what we find in John chapter 9. You'll see that in the handout. And we're just going to kind of like walk through this story. And notice, um, and I'm, uh, you'll notice that in the, first, in the first verse of John chapter 9, um, you, you see the headings? In the, in, if, you read, if you look at your Bibles, right, it says, healing of a man born blind. It's like the, now the, the writers didn't put this. The, the writer of the Gospel of John didn't put that there. But this you'll see it in all the Bible. Healing of a man born blind. And I'm going to invite you to consider at the end of this story that there should be a very different heading there. It should be the exposure of a community of shame. It's not just the healing of a man born blind. Now here's the interesting thing. The NRSB says this. As he, Jesus, as he walked along. And already, you know, one of the things about the Gospel of John, people who are a lot smarter than me who write about this, say there's a lot about John that the writer, what the writer does with intention he intentionally echoes the Genesis account. He wants the reader to know that when he's writing certain things, that what he's writing is drawing people's attention to the creation narrative. Remember, we had a first story this morning. This is the second story. The first story is the story of the joy. Right? It's the story of like, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. It was very good. There's one thing that's not good. The man will be alone. And we want to make it possible then to bring them together so that they're so able to not be alone, but the way they're going to do that is to be naked and unshamed. And shame steps in and it all goes to hell in a handbasket. And then Jesus comes. In Genesis 3, if we read further, after the fruit fest, we read, and God was walking in the cool of the evening. God was walking. Which means that God oscillates in his movement, like he comes and goes. He's never absent, but he moves around. Right? Sometimes I don't like this. I don't, I don't like that God like, walks around. Like, I think I should, I want, to be, I, want, I want him here now, and I want him in here now. Right? I don't want, like, uh, his opinion doesn't really matter to me about this. Right? I want him to be here on my terms. But apparently, he seems to have a will of his own. And he can just do it, go where he pleases, when he wants to. Imagine. And he was walking in the pool of the day. As he walked along, the opening statement of John's Gospel, chapter 9, as he walked along, he saw a man born blind. Let me assure you, Jesus sees you. How many of us, though, here tonight? Ah, we don't believe that. Or we have parts of us that don't feel 
seen. We have parts of us that, in fact, are terrified to be seen, would be afraid to be found. The parts of us that we don't want to talk about, the parts of us that if we did, we are sure that once you saw them, you would leave. Guaranteeing my fate about that one part of the creation narrative that's not good. You'll go. I had this part of me that um, uh, it's, uh, it's less troubling than it was uh, maybe uh, two years ago or five years ago or maybe ten years ago. But it still is here. If you imagine, like, you know what a crevasse is, right? In an ice sheet, right? right? A crevasse like this very thin, narrow gap in the ice that if you fall into it, like, you're just, you're just dead, right? There's no, like, wondering, no 911 call, nobody's coming to get you, right? Because, like, you're going to the center of the earth when this happens, right? And I have, like, this crevasse on the surface of my life's planet that runs to my core. And it is a worry that if I do not do well enough, and you name it, whatever, like this talk right here, if it's not like smart enough, funny enough, helpful enough, right, like you're going to go. And I worry about that. So I'll be worrying about it. So you, you, like, I'm not kidding. Like you can pray for me while I'm talking because like there is a part of me that worries about this not being a good enough, effective enough presentation. And here's the thing, like this is what shame does to every single one of us. And it finds us, each of us, in some way, shape, or form, in that way. And you know, it finds us so collectively that even when Jesus is walking and he sees us, there is a part of me that does not want him to see that crevasse. Does not want, and what I don't understand is that he's already in it. He's already waiting for you to look in it, or he's already looking at you. Who are the people in this community who are the eyes of Jesus who see you in those parts of our life where we feel like we're blind? So Jesus comes along, and then here, like, it, it, it just starts right at the beginning, right? And his disciples said, What? Isn't this just classic? Who sinned, this man or his parents, such that he was born blind, right? I'm thinking, like, Guys, like, you're missing such a great marketing opportunity. Like, why don't you just, like, like, why is it not Jesus? Like, check this out. It's a blind guy. Like, we heal this guy. Like, there could be so many tweets, it's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> the first thing that comes out of their mouth is condemnation. Whose sin was it? I will tell you, like, how many of us, from sunup to sundown, this is the question that we're asking ourselves. Whose sin? Whose sin was it? Mine or somebody else's? I'm either condemning myself or condemning somebody else. And I don't even have to use words. Shame is this automatic. It is this part, literally, of the part of my brain that has got nothing to do with conscious awareness or even language. This is who we've become. We become, like, these are the disciples. Like, these are the good guys. These are the evangelical Christians of their day. And there's a, like, who screwed up here? And Jesus says the most profound thing, right? He says, like, it was neither his nor his parent who sinned. But he was born blind such that what? Such that the works of God might be revealed in him. How many of us, if we were to roll out onto the table, the top three places, let alone ten places, where shame finds us, 
How many of us would say, yep, I, I like, it's such a cool thing that like, number one, this is a place where God's going to like do his great work in me. Like, like hell no. Because like, there's, like, I can't get my imagination around this. How is it possible that the things about me that are most vulnerable, that are most broken, are the things that God cannot wait to get his hands on? but it's really hard for me to let that happen. Notice, it's so bad in this community, the guy doesn't even get a name. Right? Like he, like he, not at the beginning, not at the middle, not at the end. He's just the blind guy, right? A blind man. It's not even Bartimaeus who gets a name, right? Bartimaeus gets a name. This, we'll, we'll call him Joe, right? Because he doesn't get a name. It's like the writer is, the writer is deft at this. Like he's really good at this. Shame is so bad for this, what he represents, because in their culture, right, if you're blind, something clearly is wrong with you. Right? And this is what we do to ourselves, right? We identify a whole host of things that are wrong with us, and shame is what runs the show. What is it like for us to hear, watch, see Jesus find us and say, all that list of shame for you? It is the way for God to reveal his work in you starting tonight. Um, it has the hint of being both thrilling and abjectly terrifying simultaneously. Yes? So then the weird thing happens, right? Jesus spits on the ground. Again, echoes. He makes mud, right? Echoes of Genesis 2. And the man... And God formed the man out of the mud of the earth. Like, the, the writer is trying to tell you, like, new formation is coming. I want to tell you, like, tonight in your lives, you have places where new formation is coming. Like, the mud is coming. You're like, but here's the problem. The blind guy, he's minding his own business being blind. And the next thing you know, it's like slap, slap. He gets like hit in the face with mud. Like he doesn't even know this is coming. Like these, like these, like like thirteen dudes over here are having a conversation. And next thing you know, he hears something. Sheesh, sheesh, right? Like Jesus doesn't ask permission. The guy isn't asking to be healed. Like I'm just minding my own business. It's important to know, God did not ask permission to make the world. He did not ask permission to send Jesus. And Jesus is not asking your permission when he comes to put the mud on your face. And I'll be honest, like, I don't like that all the time. And what does this look like? This look like if it's true that Jesus, like you, we are the body of Christ, that you are Jesus to me, it means at some point you're going to have a conversation with me in which you say, man, how are you really doing? I'm like, I'm fine. They're like, no, man, like, how are you really doing? Like, no, really, I'm fine. They're like, bullshit. They're just like, they're just going to like, tell what, no, see, Jesus is going to come to find me in you, and it will be unnerving. You know what I mean? Are we willing to be that for each other? And the next thing he does, he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, you know, it was a thing that you would do if you're a Hebrew, if you're a Jew in that time. If you were to wash, the next thing you would do would be, you would go where? You would go to the priest. You would go to the priest because it was the priest who was in charge of now declaring that you are okay. You are healed. Not only, yeah, it's okay that you're like technically now you can see. Once you were blind, but now you can see. But it also means you're now clean. 
Not just clean like I can see, but clean like there's no more shame. Somebody else has to tell you this. Now, this is an interesting thing about the way shame works in the brain. When we are in the middle of shame, we can't fix that by ourselves. We actually need somebody else's brain to come find us in order for that to take on new neural network firing patterns. It's not like guilt. We could have a whole conversation about that. But when we experience shame, I need somebody else to come find me in that. And Jesus says to him, go wash and go home. And this is where things get a little dicey, right? Because the guy can see. Thanks be to God. Like, holy cow, I can see. And then all the poop hits the fan. Have you read this chapter? He goes home. And the next thing you know, the next thing you know is that he's in trouble with his neighbors. Did you notice this? Like, why, why do they not, like, I have a party for this guy, right? Like, why do they not say, like, oh my gosh, like, you can see, this is unbelievable. No. It's important to know, when Jesus heals us, within the community, the potential is high for there to be negative side effects. Imagine you have a guy who walks along, Jesus, he sees a guy who's born blind, he puts mud on his face, he tells him to go home and wash, to go to the pool and wash, and he's clean. Can you imagine if I'm the community in whom this guy has been living for who knows how long, and I've done nothing for him? And like that, somebody does something, you think I am now not going to be ashamed of this? You think about what this now means, the indictment that this now brings to us as a community? You're with me. This is a problem. And so when communities find this kind of thing, like the ground moving beneath their feet, they quickly will circle the wagons to make that who, the person who's been healed look like the bad guy. This is what systems, this happens in families all the time, right? We see people in psychotherapy, and they start to get healthy in their family, and their family starts to rumble, right? There are all kinds of problems in which the family now sees them as even sicker than they were before. Because what's happening when they become healed, the homeostasis of their family is off kilter. And we wonder then, like, what was Jesus thinking tactically? Because he heals him, and then it would appear that two things are true. One, Jesus disappears. Do you notice this? Like, he's nowhere to be found, and yet he's everywhere. Because in the conversation that then ensues, first it's with the neighbors. Isn't this the guy? Well, I was healed, but well, where is the guy? I don't know. I didn't see him, right? And they say, well, <laughs> get that, right? It's like, y'all, like, you're smart neighbors, right? I didn't see him. <laughs> and so then the neighbors do the next best thing, right? Because they're nervous. So they say, let's take him to the lawyers. We live in D.C. This should be easy. <laughs> right? Let's take, him to, let's take him to the board of elders. Let's take him to the elders. Right? This is what the Pharisees were, the lawyers. The, the, these, these are the people who ran the church. And then, like, oh my goodness. Like, God-awful things start to happen with this guy. All kinds of questions. Who did this to you? How do you know? Are you sure? This man doesn't know what he's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is nowhere to become, but he's everywhere in the conversation. 
can you imagine if you're the guy? Like, like, I, look, I was just minding my own business, and the next thing you know, it's the mud in the pool, and like, well, now I'm here with the, the attorneys. Like, what is this all? Like, I, I didn't ask for this. And they say, well, we think we can help you. We're going to bring your family. You're like, no, I don't really need that kind of help. <laughs> because what happens when they bring his family? They bring his family, and the family says, we don't know. We, look, we think he's our son. But yeah, he's born blind, and... Now he can see. We're like, yeah, we can see. But like, let him speak for himself. Like, he's an adult, right? They're more than happy to throw him under the bus. They're more than happy to say, "Look, we see where this is going. We see that in the end, this healing project is about to get nasty, and we don't want to be on the end of the whip of nasty. So we're just gonna like, you know, he's an adult. He's 18." He can like decide for himself. And then the family leaves, and they bring the guy back in, and they go, oh, let's go through the whole thing all over again. And at the very end, right? I mean, he starts like he's sick of it, and he's like the guy's, you know, he's like in another world, like he, he's working on his stand-up comedy routine, right? Because he says, like, what? Do you guys want to be his disciples too? Right? Like he starts to like yank their chain a bit, which of course does not go over well. Right? And they come back and they say this. Right? And the writer's brilliant. Because the golden circle, those of you who like know movies, right? The, the loop, the circle is closed, the loop is completed. When they say to him, You try to teach us about these things, you were born completely in sin. Answering the disciples' question. Shame is complete. We have saved the community from the disruptive force of healing. And they threw him out. So, we're stopping just for a minute to say this. Let me just pause and say, uh, this is an example of what happens when shame is systematized, when it is institutionalized. And it's important to know there's no institution in which we dwell in which this is not true. The church included. Because where you will have humans, you will have institutional shame. The question is always going to be, are we aware of it? And what are we going to do when we see it? That's the question. If you're in the room, the shame that is in your brain is with you. Right? Like, there's not a question about like, whether I'm a sinner. Like, I'm a professional sinner. It's in the room. Jesus isn't worried about it. The question is, am I willing to tell you, this is who I am? Will you please come and find me? So there are some questions that we would ask. We would ask things like, what are the institutions that we're part of that right now in which we feel straitjacketed by this? Families of origin, marriages, church, our work environment, friendships, a range of different places where John 9 is the archetypal story. Story number two. This is what evil wants to do. It wa- it's important to know. 
Evil does not wield shame just to make us feel bad. It wields shame as a way to destroy the universe. Human beings just happen to be the people who are pulling the triggers, right? We will be the ones who destroy the environment. We will be the ones who will destroy economics and politics. We will be the ones who will destroy, like, it's not going to be like deer that do it, right? Squirrels, whales, like, they're content just to, like, do what they do, right? No, it will be us. You see, this is not just about feeling bad. This is about being devoured. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. That desire is reflected in the same desire that God talks about when he speaks to Eve in the chapter earlier where he says your husband will be your Lord and your desire will be for him. That desire in the Hebrew is not like sexual desire, interest, support. No, that desire is about a devouring. Evil's intention is to devour you. Most of us don't wake up in the morning aware of just how serious this pitched battle is in which we live because most of us are not that serious about the story that we say we believe we're living in. We come to places like this in no small part to be reminded of the seriousness of the story in which we live. Because if we are not paying attention to what evil is wanting to do systemically, not just individually, systemically, we become John Donne. And we find ways to throw each other out. And you wonder, you know, if I were writing this story, if I were writing this story, I would have written some things differently. First of all, I, if I'm the blind guy, like, I would have been, like, looking high and low, looking for this dude who, like, put mud on my face. Because, like, the minute that my neighbors start to think about, like, going, taking me to the attorneys, I say, like, well, excuse me, I need my own attorney. I'd like to find the blind guy before I go. I mean, find the guy who healed me before I go. That's what I want to find. I would write Jesus into the conversation that we have with the neighbors, with the lawyers. Like, we want Jesus there. Right? Why, like, why would I go there, like, by myself? Here's the thing. Part of the reason why I would guess that the guy could be there is because, like, once he was blind, now he could see. There was incontrovertible evidence that something in an embodied way had changed in him. Now, here's the thing. Our suffering, when, when we are dragged before the courts, the courts of our own accuser that are in our own minds, okay? I mean, that's where, that, that, you go before the court, you go, I go before the court, like, every single day. Because it's in my own head. Right? Who sinned? Did I sin today or did they sin? Was it me or is it them? Right? I so much would like to appeal to something. I'll appeal to my theology. I got to tell you, theology is important, but theology always emerges as how we make sense of what we first have physically experienced. The brain operates bottom to top and right to left. I'm only going to make sense logically and linearly of those things of which I am experientially persuaded. This guy was blind and now he could see. Now we want to know this. What's going to happen in this community such that before this weekend is over, 
you all have real experiences with each other in relationship where you're looking at each other, looking at each other, in which you say, I leave and I'm a different person because of what I've heard them say and I felt it right here in my solar plexus. You with me? See, we live in a world that is largely driven by logically rationalized thought. A lot of the gospel is preached to us from the logical, linear left side of the brain. Nancy Reagan. That name ring about anybody? Most of you weren't even born. Okay. Okay. So Nancy Reagan, there was, God rest her soul, Nancy Reagan uh, was part of a team of people who developed um, a strategy for um, doing something about the drug problem in America a long time ago. You might remember this. And she said, among others, what she said? Just say no to what? To drugs. Just say no to drugs. And like, it's all, it's, it's, it's lovely. There's just one problem. And that is, part of the brain that hears one say, just say no to drugs, has got nothing to do with the part of the brain that wants to do the drugs. <laughs> this is a tactical problem. It is the same reason why if all that I have to appeal to is a logic, a tacit, positive truth about the gospel, apart from embodied experience within the community, it will be very difficult for me to remember this. Jesus did not come and give us a set of principles and then leave in a Tesla. <laughs> If I were him, that's what I would have done. I would have left in a Tesla. I would probably never, I'm probably never going to own a Tesla, but I would want one if I were him. So you see, this, for this man, what was a big deal had a lot to do with the fact that something embodied had happened to him. And so you get the sense that Jesus is not worried about the fact that he is, quote unquote, by himself with the neighbors and the lawyers and his family and then by himself again because Jesus is well aware that he has done something. What is the evidence in embodied fashion that Jesus has done something for you in the last 24 hours? If I do not have that, it will be very difficult for me to have something to remember whereby which I know that I've been changed. And the way that happens is in this community. It happens in the groups that you're forming to have these conversations. It happens as you are willing to be vulnerable with one another about the things that you don't know you don't know. And when you are vulnerable in this way, an amazing thing happens. At the very end, what happens in this chapter? Jesus, when he heard that he had been what? Thrown out. Came to find him. Notice, it doesn't say, Jesus, when he heard that the neighbors were upset, he came to find him. When he heard that he'd been taken in front of the lawyers, he came to find him. No, he heard that he'd been thrown out. I will tell you that in the places where you are feeling most thrown out, the parts of us that we have worked really hard to throw out of our, like, because we all have parts in our own hearts, our own parts of our stories that we have worked really hard to throw out. It is only when we access those that Jesus will come to find us. He said, look, the people who are healthy, they don't need the doctor. It's the people who are sick. It's the people who've been thrown out that I need to go get. Are you with me? 
this is hard to do. Did we say earlier today, like, following Jesus is hard to do? Like, this is really hard to do. Because you have a world, we have a world, that will do everything in its power to tell you, don't do this. It's far too risky. There are far too many neighbors, far too many family members, far too many lawyers in the church. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe? And he says, I do if you'll just show me who he is. Well, the person that you're speaking to right now, it's me. Let's go live life together. And he fell and worshipped him. Because even after being dragged through the ringer, he still remembered the mud. He saw that he could see. Tonight, where are there systems in which we feel trapped? Where do we long to see? Where do we long for ourselves to be seen? You know, it was Hagar, right? It was in Genesis 15, 15, I think, right? Behold the God who sees me. That God is to be seeing us in the eyes of the people who are sitting next to us, before us, behind us. It is in this space that the Holy Spirit comes like Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where there's a wind that is sweeping. And we want him to sweep in and through our lives as long as we will let him.